Welcome to AUHSD Future Talks, where we talk about the post-COVID world beyond this pandemic. And many of us are concerned about what that means, both in terms of jobs, in terms of uh, the economy, the environment, mental health. There's so many issues facing our young people. And so we've been so lucky to have leadership across the spectrum of education, business, nonprofits, people that have dedicated their lives to helping young people in one way or the other. And, um, and today I'm, I'm really, really honored to have a very special guest, someone, a longtime Anaheim resident, somebody that uh, has an amazing story coming here as an undocumented young person many years ago, grew up in Oxnard, and um, has just an amazing lived experience that ended up at uh, UC Irvine and then beyond that, uh, receiving his PhD from Harvard University. And it's somebody that also became a college professor in Chicano Studies at Cal State Long Beach and also became the president of Los Amigos of Orange County, the oldest and probably the most influential civil rights group in Orange County, and also became a city councilman and who's uh, trying to bring transparency and voice to the city council. But I think that Dr. Marino would openly say the most proud thing he is is uh, being a husband and father to four wonderful young girls, all of whom either attend or attended the Anaheim Union High School District. His two oldest daughters are now in the UC system. The oldest is at UCLA. So without further ado, I want to introduce you to um, a very good friend to Anaheim um, and probably this always usually the smartest guy in the room. So we're very honored to have Dr. Jose Marino. And um, Jose, just want to get right into it. Tell us a little bit more about your life and how you, um, what's your big driver in life? Uh, hello, uh, Michael Matsuda. Uh, good morning, no, good afternoon, we're at 120. Um, thank you for the invite um, and for all the work you continue to do and, um, in this work called education. Uh, drivers in life, well, you just, I think, said it, the most important thing for me is how we think about ourselves in context of family, uh, in context of community, and as we learned in Anaheim, in the context of how we're products of kindness. Uh, but we're also products of social and political history, right, that often may not have been as kind, depending on our own backgrounds and origins. Um, so, um, but through that lens of, of understanding that we are all um, interconnected, interrelated, that uh, as Bernie Sanders' uh, campaign often said, uh, it's not about me, it's about us. And it's that ethic, I think, that is engenders the best values of what it means to be a resident and citizen of the United States and certainly uh, to be part of the human family. So what, what drives us is how do we help one another um, to achieve the goals and dreams that we have for ourselves? You know, um, I'll say certainly many people, especially in education, feel that uh, democracy is under threat, that educators have not done a good enough job of preparing young people for uh, so many huge decisions um, ahead of them. Uh, 
how how did that happen and i guess how does that um affect i guess you know students in college right you know how do we move democracy into the schools and into our colleges and universities it's a great question mike it's one that I think it's 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 a constant and reflective question. There's no one answer to it or a static answer, right? And as you were um, posing the question, I was thinking of a good friend who's currently the president of the school board in Santana Unified, a fellow academic with me. He's the chair of our Chicano Latino Studies Department, Dr. Rigoberto Rodriguez. And in his work in community uh, and in his, his studies in, in social policy, he says, uh, let's not forget that when we think about the question that the educators or social workers or others who uh, are entrusted right to implement the values of our system is that um, there are good people who work in bad systems and so what we see in education is the blaming of educators and you know the the, the question you ask is you know this challenge to educators to do better by students uh, is it, uh, yes, we should challenge our educators to do better by students, but educators are also working within a framework. And so 20 years ago, in more recent memory and recent history, uh, the United States doubled down with the No Child Left Behind Act that said educators will have to focus on reading and math. And that's how you will be evaluated as an education system, uh, in part because our students were struggling on that measure. Uh, but instead of thinking more holistically about the system, we ended up almost, in fact, we ended up blaming teachers and started to regulate them as we regulate um, a traditional industrialized uh, economy, right? And so to me, it's, it's, it's that, Mike, I think we're, we're hitting a moment uh, and hopefully we take the opportunity. I think that's what you're working on. I think that's what a lot of us in higher ed are working on is in higher ed, we've shifted to a language of student success, that the student has to be the center. And that was a function of unequal graduation rates, uh, students taking out heavy loans and not finishing college, uh, now being recruited into private uh, for-profit colleges and not finishing a la Trump University, uh, left and dragged down with loans without the certificate. Um, but what we're uh, reconnecting with is the idea of, uh, while the enterprise is about students, it's, the enterprise is really about learning, right? Learning, and not simply preparing for an economy not simply preparing with a particular skill, but learning to be more fully human in that work, right? As well as doing the work. And so we, we've come back full circle to saying, well, at the core of student learning is faculty, right? The preparation of faculty to be able to evolve and move into becoming uh, better equipped in our pedagogy and to be able to be reflective in that pedagogy. And that's the moment we're in. And, and just like K-12, um, but the difference is in K-12, there's a training, right, to the artistry of teaching. And the No Child Left Behind made it this rigid, almost science of teaching. And it's an art and a science. We all know that based on our populations, right, and the needs uh, and the possibilities. In higher ed, um, in graduate school, you don't get trained how to teach. You get uh, often put into a class to be a, a graduate assistant. You lead a discussion section, but you're not developing the curriculum. You're not developing your pedagogy. And I think higher ed's coming to terms with that. And so we're seeing a good movement of professional learning environments um, that can help faculty uh, become better pedagogues uh, in the classroom. You know, um, just as we're trying to ramp up the amount of 
students of color and low-income students into the higher ed colleges and universities, we're being told that there's going to be a big falling out. There's a lot of uh, universities that are under threat. I mean, COVID-19 has laid bare a lot of inequities and and in colleges and universities, we're being told that many of them are going to go out of business. We're also seeing the rise of tuition. And we're, I think many young people are beginning to question why go to college, right? If, um, if, if it's just so dire, what, how do you respond to that, Jose? Well, that's what happens when you put education into a market-driven um, ideology, right? And if we all agree that, that the foundation of a society is an educated citizenry, and I don't mean simply in the work of, econo- of, the, of the economy, national, regional, or local, but education is the foundation of our democracy as we kind of started the conversation today. You just put out a, an incredible op-ed of will our democracy, our republic survive, quoting Benjamin Franklin, right? You're only able to quote Benjamin Franklin, Mike, because, uh, Superintendent Matsuda, uh, because somewhere along the line in your own education, you learned about this history of what our country is founded on. With his faults and all, Benjamin Franklin, right, and our founding fathers, with their faults and all, there were these ideas that have lived out uh, throughout time, throughout our history, that uh, the idea that uh, of the United States and of our current government is um, you build strong economies uh, by building and supporting people to become, uh, to maximize their potential, right? Be it in the arts, be it in, in technical, being in industry, being in, 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 in philosophy. So, so to me, the threat to higher ed is really saying, um, one, is higher education relevant, right? Uh, is it worth getting a degree in today's terms? Uh, has, has higher education evolved uh, to meet the needs? Or, or this is a critical or, or have we divested so much from education that the only reason for an education in the United States now is the technical work, is, to, is, is this instrumentalist thing to get a job? And I think we're at a great peril that as we begin to move to create access, broader access for particularly working poor, working class families and within that racialized communities that have been historically excluded and are now finding some entry, that now when we, over the past 20 years, is when we really begin to speak about retrenchment, right? Retrenchment, we don't have enough money. Uh, so, so I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's more complex than just whether universities, for me, will survive COVID, uh, it's, are we surviving COVID in a way that was, it was undermined by our retrenchment in our education, right? Is, have our current leaders received the kind of education they need that would have allowed us to engage this pandemic? And I would argue that they may have had the technical skills, but the ethical nature of how they chose to make decisions having been graduates of higher education, were not at the center of their actual policy decision-making. It's not just that they follow the science, it's what ethically guided them to not follow the science, right? And I think that's where higher ed has to improve and why it's even more needed than ever. So I think, I mean, if uh, what you're saying is that there is currently retrenchment, and we've seen it certainly in, in K-12, a focus on STEM, the math and sciences to get jobs, which yes, no one's gonna argue with that, but you know, 
it's the difference between STEM and STEAM. And I think that you would call it uh, the importance of a liberal arts education, right? Could you expand on that? Because I, you, you mentioned this sort of ethical piece that seems to be uh, missing. So, and, and, and I think a lot of the colleges that are under threat are the smaller liberal arts colleges that will uh, be going under. Right, that's an important distinction. I mean, in higher ed, we talk about it as one entity. It's, it's community colleges, it's, um, it's private, small liberal arts colleges, and then state universities, right? Um, and then it's technical, technical colleges. So, um, yeah, well, I mean, liberal, small liberal arts colleges um, are often the most effective learning environments because they're smaller. Uh, they're engaged in liberal arts, which is where Students are engaging one another in, in their ideas and their lived experience, they're reading literature, but they're also engaged in general education, which involves uh, science, which involves philosophy and, and, and the intersections therein. Uh, but private liberal arts colleges are privately funded and they depend on tuition. Um, and, and, and I think, well, I know, I feel that um, what Jeannie Oaks from UCLA called the academic arms race. We get into, especially in middle-class life, we get into the prestige of a college uh, is more valuable than what that college may be actually teaching and whether it is actually the best fit for my student, right? So um, we do know that there are these small liberal arts colleges that have marketed themselves only to very high-income families. You wouldn't know about them. Colby College, Reed College, McAllister College, uh, the Seven Sister Colleges, things that I didn't know about growing up as a working class immigrant student. I was only privy to the UC and the Cal State, right, uh, and the community college. Um, so in terms of the relevance and the cost, Mike, I, there's two ways to look at it, that if, if families want to spend their income to go to a high-priced college uh, because they feel that's going to bring some value to them, that's an assessment they need to make for themselves. I think the bigger question for us is the rising cost of state university tuition. And yes. that's, only a, that's only a function of a divestment by the state and the federal government in truly resourcing our research universities, our teaching institutions like the Cal State, and certainly the, the community college as we know it, right? Community college shouldn't be considered simply a transfer institution. It's not a, hey, you couldn't make it to UC, so let's get you here, or hey, you couldn't afford the Cal State, so why don't you do these two years here first? The community college is supposed to be about producing and supporting local economies, local lifelong learning, um, and certainly local integration spaces for immigrant families who are trying to figure out how they might use their previously learned skills in their native country, how they might learn a language or the language of the industries or, or econ economies here. So yeah. uh, we, we, we reduced the community college to, 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 to that. And I think that's, that, that's a loss to our community. You know, in the few minutes that we have left, I, I do want to address another big issue. As you're aware, we had a lot of students in Anaheim uh, peacefully protesting in July and August around the Black Lives Matter movement. Most of our students are Latino descent. How do you would you re, uh, how do you answer the question why just Black Lives Matter? Well, I don't I don't believe it is uh, a just Black Lives Matter. It's about a, a century and a recognition, especially as, as a Chicano, as a Mexican-American, Mexican origin, most of our students are Mexican origin. And I think this goes back to the conversation we've been having, Mike, this liberal arts education, which is where I'm, I'm thrilled that my daughters 
have had their education in Anaheim elementary schools uh, and in Anaheim Union is through dual language academies, um, through, uh, through AIM, through these integrative curricular approaches that, that you've all been taking with an emphasis on civic education as much as um, the traditional markers um, of, of, of SATs and, and, and CSTs uh, is that, that there's a growing understanding that we have failed our students and our society by detracting civic education and ethnic studies within that. Civic understanding ethnic relations and the histories of those relations uh, is essential to the workforce. It's essential to a democracy. Uh, it's essential for our students to have a, a cultural literacy about the world. So for Mexican origin students, when they learn, for example, that Mexico abolished slavery 20, 40 years before, and that that was actually the inception of why there was the U.S.-Mexican War, uh, in part because Texas as a republic wanted to sustain slavery, and they asked the United States to intervene because the Mexican government was telling them you can't have slaves in Texas, it's a Mexican territory. That was part of the precipitous of the U.S.-Mexican War. Um, so Mexican students don't know that. Mexican origin students don't know that. They also don't know that there was a Southern Railroad, Underground Railroad of, of enslaved Africans who went south to Mexico to achieve their freedom, right? Um, they also um, aren't taught enough that 95% of enslaved Africans were brought to Latin America. So we have our own process to work with as, as, as a heritage and how African people African heritage people, Afro-Latinos, as we say, uh, themselves are struggling with colorism in our community. So it's, it's essential that we understand Black Lives Matter, um, but that doesn't mean it's to exclusion of anyone else. It's simply recognizing we have failed uh, to recognize that the darker one's skin, the less we value their life. Yeah, I think, uh, um, unfortunately, there's uh, this racialization and colorization in many minority groups, Asians as well. Uh, you, you, you touched on another issue though, and, and, and real quickly, why is it important for businesses to hire people? Or what is, why, is it, why is ethnic studies or Black Lives Matter important from a business perspective? It's cultural literacy. It's just like when we think, the, the, the one that I could think of the, the, is the most appropriate um, Example, Mike, is language, right? We now know, business now, now knows, if you're in Anaheim, you better have some Spanish-speaking folks in your business if you really want to reach your entire market. You better have some Vietnamese-speaking folks in parts of Orange County, including Anaheim, if you want to reach the market, Korean-speaking folks. Same thing as much as we want to say race doesn't matter, it does matter. Now, does that connote to racism? That's up to us. So to the extent that you, that the diversity and the reflective work that if an employer is able to hire from different aspects of its diverse community, then the more trust that community will have that they will be treated fairly in that business, the more trust that they'll have that the products being produced won't provide and undermine the health of that community. And so there's also an ethical kind of uh, affinity that one has that, hey, if, if you're hiring folks like me from my neighborhood or people that reflect my cultural space, then I, I get a sense that you understand where I'm at and what I need in products and also my trust in those products. So I think it creates that connection, Mike. Um, and it's not led by the bottom line. It's led by if your ethical practice of being inclusive is seen and understood as authentic, that then will help your bottom line by default, right? 
um, where you lose your bottom line is when you become inauthentic and people no longer trust you and how you're operating. And that's a great boycott, right? That's a great boycott. Uh, when, you're, when your authenticity is then seen as simply a superficial approach of the bottom line. And, I'm, and I think in Anaheim, we're, we're looking to transform that. Um, and I think we're seeing it with so many entrepreneurs coming to work with AIM, right? The dozens and dozens of companies that are saying, you know what, I didn't know that our Latino kids were struggling the way they are that there's so, so much working poverty in the happiest place on earth. We didn't know there were motel kids. How do we help, right? You had Bruno Serrato saying, not, I don't, it's, it's not enough to just feed the kids. There's a reason they're hungry. Let's get them the kind of educational uh, and occupational support they need so they can become chefs, right? And, and I think that that ethic that um, I think we're all hoping to contribute to that, that is embodied in how AUHSD is trying to transform education is, is essential to the workplace as well as the the, the public square. Yeah. What are you, what are your uh, parting words to our young people, Jose? And the, You're and, not and, the future. Yeah, you are not the future. You are the present. Please do not allow people to keep saying you young people are the are the future. You are the so, present. So, so I should uh, be calling it AUHSD present talks, huh? <laughs> you should, uh, but but uh, you know. Young people outnumber boomers in terms of the number of, of registered voters. It's in the power of what happens in our democracy is in your hands today, not tomorrow. Uh, and then lastly, you could change systems today, not tomorrow. You can make sure that the tomorrow you're looking for, the foundation is set today. Uh, and, and I appreciate what young folks have done in Anaheim to transform our democracy. I've appreciated how they've engaged and taken the opportunities provided. Um, but they're not coming deferential. They're coming saying, thank you for, for being with me. Um, and, and I just hope that young folks sustain that ethic and that their families encourage them in that ethic and that our systems continue to transform their ethic of seeing our young people as assets and not simply something to be managed and controlled and or, or guided in ways that we think is best for them, but that they could be self-determined. So stay strong, folks. Um, you're the present. Well, Dr. Jose Marino, you are our present, and we are so grateful, and I look forward to having another chat with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Superintendent Matsuda. Keep on keeping on. So thank you. <laughs>